Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, Gigi Foster, uh, she's a professor of economics, and we're going to talk about the uh, the economics and other I guess, aspects of the COVID situation. So Gigi, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Richard. I'm good. Tell me about your, uh, your background and what you do. Sure. Um, so I'm a professor, as you mentioned, at the School of Economics at UNSW, as we are known to people in Australia. And I came to Australia in 2003. I'm American, as you can probably tell from the accent, and uh, studied when I was in the U.S., studied ethics, politics, and economics, and then went on to get a Ph.D. in economics, and then took a job actually in Adelaide, which is in South Australia, when I first came out here, and was there for six years at the University of South Australia, and then moved to UNSW in 2009. And I've been trained in labor and public economics, which are very applied sort of microeconomics areas or subfields of the discipline. But since I've been, I suppose, tenured and more established, I have turned my attention to more, I guess, things that I think are extremely important for economics to grow and develop and that are also important for us to provide good services to humanity. Because of course, professors are funded by the taxpayer dollar. So I see very strongly that there's a social mission to our work. And so, for example, during the COVID period, I've been very involved in in communicating with the Australian public, modeling some of the costs of lockdowns, um, speaking out against the wrong policy choices that we've made here, and just generally trying to be of service to the society, because I do think that's one of the the main roles that we have uh, as the professoriate in not just UNSW, but just generally across the sector. 
what do you think was done right? What do you think was done wrong in regards to COVID and why? Like, what did you see early on that was right and wrong? Yeah, so so early on, so in March 2020, I have a national radio program that's uh, that sort of airs occasionally, and we were on our fourth season of that. It's called The Economist on ABC Radio National, and as it happened, it was going on in March of 2020, and so my co-host and I were able to essentially change our planned uh, agenda of topics into being completely about COVID for that almost that whole season. And sometime in March, I think it was the 20-something of March, I went on the air for the first time, not having told my co-host that I was going to do this. And I basically said, it's it's the wrong thing to do to treat this like, uh, you know, the, this massive threat that's going to require us to lock down economies. That's not the right response. We should be doing basically targeted protection. We should aggressively protect people who are vulnerable to this virus. And we already knew at that stage who was really vulnerable because we did have data of, uh, you know, from, from other countries about how lethal this thing was by age. And so it was very clearly something that was targeting mainly older people in terms of making them mainly sick and, and dying. And then the younger people were not as as vulnerable to it right and then i mean obviously it's you know it was early days and we didn't have perfect information but it certainly seemed from those early uh you know looks at the at the age charts that it just this was not the kind of bug that should motivate us to think about locking down whole economies and in fact if we did that we would be jeopardizing our ability to protect the people who really needed the protection which as it turns out were the older people and the immunocompromised people and we've we you know basically had that information confirmed as the year went on and so throughout the year i was going on various different you know mainstream and non-mainstream media uh, vehicles, prints and, and radio and television, essentially saying the same story. And uh, I was one of the very few voices in Australia, certainly amongst economists who was prepared to do this. And that, that for me, that was really alarming because I had thought for, you know, basically ever since I've been in the profession, that economics was about the maximization of human welfare and that our duty as economists was to state what we thought was best, even if it wasn't what people wanted to hear. And certainly at the time when we were making all sorts of very draconian decisions, not just at the at the level of you know international borders being closed, but within Australia, we closed national borders. Just now, we've just recently had a snap lockdown in Brisbane, just and this is March 2021, right? And right before Easter, I mean, you know, it's just it's nuts. And and there were these lockdowns of particular states. Victoria, our state of Victoria, went very hard into lockdown multiple times. We had school closures, um, we had mandatory mask wearing, uh, it just a lot of interventions which are extremely costly and and our GDP has gone backwards. So we've lost something like 2.6% of GDP or 2.4%, depending on what, what estimate you look at. And of course, that's, that's a massive you know, blow to our ability to continue spending on important things going forward. And that includes things that you know, primarily make people have longer, happier, healthier lives. That's the whole point of having a functioning economy. And I was disappointed, not just that my fellow economists seemed unable to find the courage to call this out, but also that the man on the street was just so totally compliant and and essentially just rolled over and and you know was was willing to implement all of these really really damaging restrictions without understanding the costs um, because they weren't available on some spreadsheet or on some news feed you know a lot of the costs are something are things that you have to imagine in your mind we know that keeping children home from school is going to be bad for them even if you're going online for classes it's still not the same and you're putting some kids particularly those who are already disadvantaged into really bad situations often because you're putting them back into homes where there may be dysfunctionality or 
at the very least, cramped space and not enough time to go out and play with, you know, other children, not enough opportunity to go out and play with other children and, uh, you know, and be healthy. And so we know that's going to be bad. And yet people were prepared to just wear that kind of cost and the cost of all of the crowded out health care and the mental health. Were people prepared to do anything or were they just forced to and they just gave up and accepted? I mean, I don't think it was about forcing. I think, in, if anything, actually, the people were the ones who were clamoring for these kinds of restrictions, which also we saw overseas. So in well, the how, do you, how do you know that? I mean, how do you know that? Like what I've I mean, seen in the, the U.S. Polls. You look at the polls. Yeah. The U.S. is very so the U.S., I think there has been much more resistance against these sorts of calls for lockdowns and, and, and restrictions on liberty. But in Australia and in the U.K. as well, there's been mass agreement by the populations with these measures. So at the height of the Victorian lockdowns, more than 70 percent of people were in multiple different polls were approving of the Victorian premier, Danny Andrews, handling of the crisis. And in fact, clamoring for more lockdowns in the UK. So oh I, I don't God. think actually it was, it was that the, the politicians were shoving things down people's throats. I think what happened here was that the politicians early on, actually in early March, before the ICL modeling came out, you remember the, the College London. Which was uh, complete garbage, as I heard, right? Yeah, the, the Neil Ferguson modeling, right? Which was just off by order of magnitude, you know, at least one order of magnitude, maybe two. And he he's published this, you know, crazy model and, and had done the same kind of thing, by the way, in previous uh, issues, you know, problems with pandemics that had come up, um, had done some, you know, very, very scary modeling and then got everybody all hyped up about it. And it turned out to be a huge overreaction. And of course, that's what I was hoping would happen this time is that people would realize, okay, look, these are just, these are not nutty assumptions. There's no way that this thing is going to get this big. But Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And, and we just had this domino effect of country upon country going into lockdown. But before that report was released, even in Australia, you had, I think, our chief health minister saying something like, you know, this isn't really a huge deal. It's, it's you know, most of the time, if you get it, you're going to be fine. So basically making the correct noises about it in terms of, you know, the proportionality of the threat. And, and then things just changed within a week or two. And I think one of the big problems was that our population started to get really, really scared. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership, from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. They watched these video feeds coming in from Italy. They they read about the Neil Ferguson modeling. They started having all this boogeyman stuff go on in their heads about how, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. And and they just started clamoring for something to save them. And it was, if anything, I, I would say as a behavioral economist, looking at that behavior, that looks like a religious response. That is a response of somebody who's absolutely, you know, petrified of something, looking for a life raft, looking for a psychological life raft, too scared to really think, and is prepared to accept anything that is sold to them as being in service of reducing the the danger. And that's the way that these policies were sold. Well, now that it's been, uh, you know, just over a year, what do the latest polls say? Are people still scared and clamoring for more lockdowns or what's their opinion now or is it fragmented? 
Look, I haven't seen a recent poll, but I can certainly say the the sentiment on the street does seem to be shifting. Um, so interestingly, last, last week I was on a, a current affairs television program called ABC Q&A, which I was on twice last year. So I have a bit of a comparison point there. So I was on it, I think, in April and then again in July, maybe last year and then just recently last week. And last year, those appearances were extremely fraught. So I was being interrupted constantly. People were accusing me of being a granny killer, of being a, a neoliberal Trump cannot death cult warrior who should go back to America. I mean, really bad stuff. And I got lots and lots of, uh, you know, abuse on Twitter afterwards. In fact, apparently I was defamed on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter, but my friends tell me I was defamed there. I did get a lot of love email as well, but I also got some hate mail. I got a couple death threats, uh, my voicemail, and I got a, a, a toilet roll with Donald Trump's face printed on it. I mean, that's sort of crazy stuff. Now, compared to that, last week's appearance was much more balanced. There was a question that came in asking, how could you have, how could you live with yourself after what you said about lockdowns last year? You know, I'm 60 years old and I guess you just think my life isn't worth living or something. And some audience member uh, had been interviewed with this question. And I was, I was able to essentially, you know, publicly stand my ground and say, I'm proud that I've served Australia like this. And I got claps for that from the studio audience. And afterwards, there was some blowback on Twitter again, but again, I've gotten a lot of love email uh, through, you know, just on private line. So I, I feel, and, and even the host was kind of unable to come back with an argument when I said, look, I don't want to just talk about COVID deaths. I want to talk about all deaths. I want to talk about human well-being because that's the maximand here. That's what we should be looking at, overall human well-being. And we're hurting that when we hurt our economy the way we have. And so this whole false trade-off between, you know, the economy on one hand and lies on the other, which I rejected back last year when I was on the program, it was really firmly rejected this year and, uh, you know, easier to sort of toe that line. So I do think that the sentiment is shifting a bit. We've seen a little more pushback in the mainstream media. We've seen um, some of our major newspapers publishing editorial pieces. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the Wall Street Journal had a piece saying something like the lockdowns aren't worth it, right, or weren't worth it about maybe a fortnight ago or a month ago. So we are starting to see that kind of shift here as well, but it's just very slow going. And as I said, Brisbane just went into another lockdown for three days. I mean, it was some arbitrary number of days because of something like, you know, 10 cases or fewer. So there's still this kind of madness going on. And of course, the big thing in the long run is that we still have not opened up our international borders. I mean, we're, we're prisoners here. I can't leave. Right. I mean, unless I have a really good reason, like I, I take a job overseas I might be able to get out if like my father died, who's living in New York State, he's just turned 90. I might be able to get out of Australia if I applied under some compassionate humanitarian thing. But even if I did, I would have to quarantine on the way back. I'd have to stay in a hotel for two weeks at, on my own dime. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And, you know, so it's a, it's a it's a very onerous thing. And I can't certainly can't go just for travel, you know, just to get out of the country for a while. Right. That's not possible. So it, it, it we're still in that kind of, you know, uncertain environment where we don't we don't know businesses don't know when they're going to be able to start opening up. I mean, the travel agencies and the airlines have been been crushed, you know, and, and there's just uh, like the tourism business, which is something that Australia has relied on a lot. Right. Our tourism sector is usually in most years quite healthy, just like our international education uh, sector. Right. So we bring in a lot of students from China, particularly and other places. And I work in the higher ed sector. In fact, I'm the director of education for our School of Economics. And I can tell you that's been a tough job this, this period because 
you know, we've, we've in estimation lost a heap of revenue and we've had to close courses. We've had to let staff go and the universities still don't really know what the future holds because there's not been any policy certainty about when are we going to open these international borders. And so that's a real concern of mine. You know, Australia is a, is a small open economy. We need international borders to be open and we've just not, not moved towards that yet. Um, so, and we're still having trouble. So as a- what's, what's the dynamic? So at first it looks like the people were clamoring for, you know, lock us down, do whatever it takes. Yeah. A year, over a year has gone by. What do you think the, the, you know, again, I guess you can just do it anecdotally. Like I have been like everyone's doing, but what do you see as the mood of people? Are they tired of this stuff? Are they still living in fear and uncertain? Are people divided? Like, what do you see? It's definitely more divided now than it was a year ago. And I will say that one of the one of the programs that the Australian government put in place back in, I think it was April last year, is called JobKeeper. And I think it has definitely played a role in mediating people's reactions to the policies that have been implemented in the following ways. So JobKeeper, I actually really supported JobKeeper when it first came out, because the idea was to supplement people's incomes while we had a, what I was hoping would be a short cessation of economic activity in the you know various different states and basically you know so shops couldn't trade but you still wanted the workers to get income and so jobkeeper came in and basically paid people to sit at home right for some period of time but the good thing about that was not really just the the, the payment i mean that's nice to support incomes but it was also that you were preserving those links between the employers and the employees right because if you destroy those links then you're creating a recession because you're creating a situation in in which those links have to be recreated. Basically, factors of production have to find each other again. And that's a very costly, time-consuming process, as we know from historical examples. Like, for example, when the the Eastern Bloc countries fell, right, when when the Soviet Union fell back in 1991, I mean, that that created years of human misery because all of those links between production factors were severed because those links had been in place because of the communist system, right? That had been sort of directed, planned uh, economic, uh, you know, production plans. And when those links were severed, everybody had to find a new person to trade with, right? A new a new person to sell to, a new upstream supplier, all that. And that took years. And so what I was concerned about when we started enforcing these cessations of economic activity was that all of these links would break and the links would have to be reformed and that would take a long time. But JobKeeper sort of held out the promise that we wouldn't have to go through that pain. And so I was a big supporter of the program when it first happened, but it has now lasted for a year. In fact, today is the 30th of March and it's scheduled to finish at the end of this month. And I think what's happened is basically people have I don't like to say, uh, you know, to make it too graphic, but they've suckled at the moist teat of, of JobKeeper and kind of forgotten about the fact that um, even though their incomes may look okay, and even though GDP as calculated by the income method may look okay, because we've been just plowing money into the economy through JobKeeper and some other schemes, um, in fact, the policies we've been implementing are really bad for Australia in the long run. And so when JobKeeper ends, I'm hoping, even though I, I you know, I don't, I don't like to imagine the suffering that people will will experience when their incomes plummet. But I'm hoping that a little bit more pain at the coal face in people's back pockets will actually motivate them to snap out of this this, existence of being spellbound with COVID and forgetting about everything else that matters. Well, politically, I guess the politicians were, you know, it was reinforced that they were doing what they thought was the right thing early on. What about now? Is there blowback in the politicians? Are they just going to keep pushing the same line of stuff forever? Like what, what's your thoughts? 
Well, I mean, they have a very strong incentive from a number of directions to uh, keep the story going that they did the right thing, right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, they will feed people that story no matter how completely insane the story becomes, right? Um, and, and so they have the incentive as well because we now have this whole industrial machinery behind the notion that COVID is really awful and we have to fight it, fight it, fight it, right? We have all the, the big pharma companies with the vaccines. We have the um, personal protective equipment manufacturers. We have all of the online companies like, you know, the, the Zoom, what we're using right now, and, and, and Google and Amazon who have done incredibly well during this period. And you can bet your bottom dollar that those companies are going to be in league with or, you know, asking the politicians to keep this going in various explicit and implicit ways. And of course, the politicians also have their own face to worry about. So, you know, it's, I don't know the last politician who said, you know, got up on a podium and said to people in an audience, oh, uh, sorry, I, uh, I, I really messed up last year. Please forgive me. We're now going to do something different. You know, that just that's kind of untenable politically. And so one of the things that I have been going on about for the last probably four to six months is that we really need a new political message here. We need a message that says not COVID is something really dangerous. We all have to protect each other and stay home and, you know, cower under the bed because somebody might die otherwise. But rather, we've got this virus's number. We know something about this virus. We didn't know a year ago. We can use that information. We have the upper hand and we're going to protect our older people. We're going to protect our immunocompromised people. Here are the plans we have in place to do that. And we're going to let everybody else get on with their lives. That's the message we need. Um, and it, it may not be fully accurate in the sense that it implies that what was done last year was that was correct. <laughs> That's not true, but you need something politically feasible, right? And I think a politician today could get away with that sort of message, but it takes, it still takes some courage because you'd have to break from the, the, the what is still the mainstream line in the political classes. And in terms of your question of whether people are, are balking at these, these political decisions now, I mean, in Brisbane, anecdotally right now, despite the, the three days snap lockdown that was just announced, people are kind of not treating it as serious. They're kind of treating it as a bit of a joke because it's sort of like, oh, here we go again. You know, people are kind of sick of it, um, kind of over it. But at the same time, with the job keeper, you know, keeping up our incomes and, you know, people generally not feeling, you know, particularly personally stressed by these kinds of issues, at least in the main, they're willing to go along with it. Well, does uh, Australia and New Zealand have day laborers, people that uh, they don't work, that they, they don't eat? The reason why mm -hmm. I say it is I've spoken to people in India and Pakistan and a bunch of countries and they have millions and millions and millions of people in that situation. And, yeah. you know, all these lockdowns and nonsense is literally killed oh it's absolutely killed it's killed millions of people i mean don't make no mistake we've killed millions and millions of people and many of them children by the way in the developing world so that's that it's, it's unethical and it, it it's it's just makes you want to punch the wall if you think about it too much i mean what do we think has gone you know happened to people's aids aid budgets you know in the developed world we've we've they've, they've tanked because what's happened is people have refocused on their national priorities and anything any thoughts for all the poor black and brown people around the world who are you know living hand to mouth as you know are basically gone out the window Right. So, I mean, people who, you know, in normal times, like the left side of politics, normally in, you know, sort of non-COVID years bleats on about the poor suffering people around the world. Well, this this experience that we've gone through right now, what we have done has hurt those people, you know, more than we've hurt them probably for the past decade. 
So, you know, it's just, it's just, it's nonsensical. And that's been an, another huge, you know, alarming and very despairing thing for me to witness during this period is just the absence of sense, basically on the left side of politics completely. And on the right side of politics, there've been people who have been speaking sense on COVID, but then we also have some conspiracy theorists and all sorts of crazy stuff as well. And it's very difficult. And I can understand it's difficult for the men on the streets. So. Now in Australia and New Zealand, of course, we're not a developing country, right? So we don't really have people living hand in mouth. We have these programs like Job JobKeeper, we have another one called Job Seeker, which is like unemployment insurance. We have lots of different social insurance programs, actually far better than the United States, I have to say, in terms of even in a non-COVID year, it's, it's a really a functioning social democracy. Um, and so we don't have that kind of extreme humanitarian condition that they do in India or, or other, you know, lower, very lower income in countries. But we do have workers who don't have much of a voice, who are more precariously attached to the labor market than people like you and me. And they are the ones who have suffered disproportionately. As I've said many times, again, on national media, this, this recession, like most recessions, has been regressive. We have hurt disproportionately the people who are already disadvantaged, and we should be ashamed. Well, um, if the politicians uh, can't say anything because they'll look bad, what's going to happen from here? What do you think is going to happen over this next year? Uh, well, you know, I think what's going to happen, the biggest thing that will probably help us is, uh, to be honest, is jealousy. It's looking over our borders and seeing that other countries are opening up and having a good time. Like looking in Florida and saying, oh my God, they're partying on the streets. Why can't we have that, right? Or gee, those people are having a vacation in Greece. I'd like to go to Greece. Why can't we have that, right? That's that kind of competition and jealousy. I think that is probably one of the, gonna be one of the biggest positive influences on our outcomes, as much as it's not something we maybe would be proud of, uh, you know, we're just speaking in the abstract, you know, what's great about humans? Well, you wouldn't usually say their jealousy or their, their desire to have what somebody else has, but I think honestly, that's gonna be one of the biggest things. And here in Australia, I do think that the end of JobKeeper will be helpful probably and on net in terms of moving the dial politically. And uh, we've also seen a couple of other kind of distractions recently. So the, the Scott Morrison is our um, prime minister and he and his cabinet have gotten into a little bit of a kerfuffle in relation to the treatment of women. You know, that has made him look a bit bad. There may be a few other areas of discontent that come up more strongly and that may end up, you know, having some political toppling possibly. What are your thoughts on uh, masks? Will they be mandated to the end of time? You know, vaccine oh. passports, all this stuff. Well, unfortunately, I think the vaccine passport thing is a real possibility. Uh, and of course, you know, if I think about non-COVID vaccines, you know, when I, I went around the world when I was 11 with my mom at the time, and I remember still having to get vaccines before I went to places like, you know, Hyderabad or wherever, you had to get typhoid, you had to get, you know, gynecoglobulin and these, these nasty vaccines for diseases that are really bad and they can hurt children a lot, right? And so I kind of, I never really thought twice about that. It's sort of an expected thing. Yes, you want to protect you yourself. You had to? Or it was yes, suggested to. You literally no, had, were, were required. Yeah, literally, to. yep. You had to. You had an immunization passport, and you had to go through your various different shots. I think we had to get about five or six different shots over the course of maybe five months or so before we left. And we went around. We're literally around the world. So we stopped in India and Egypt and Turkey. Um, and, you know, places where in Hong Kong as well. So, you know, I could sort of, I never really thought twice about it, right? Now, with this COVID thing, my main concern is that COVID is just not that dangerous for people who are, you know, under 60 and basically healthy. And so forcing people to get vaccines for that kind of 
low danger you know, disease just seems completely disproportionate. And again, one of my main strengths, it seems to be during this period, which I've figured out is the is ability to keep uh, perspective. And you know, you look at it that way and it just doesn't seem like this is a reasonable response. It's a disproportionate response. But I do think it's gonna be a very seductive path for Australian politicians. Because again, we are an island nation and it feels safe, just like a lockdown. It feels safe, it's a, there's an emotional response. And the intellectual side is kind of missing a lot of the time. It has been missing our policy make last year. And so I think that could also possibly be the case for these vaccines. Now, it would be nice if the government could consider possibly an alternative such as, well, you know, you don't have to have the vaccine, but you must uh, be willing to be tested, you know, before you go or tested on arrival back in or maybe have your blood tested or, you know, something else that you could do other than having to get the vaccine. I certainly don't want my children getting the vaccine. Um, and, I, you know, I just don't see that it's necessary at all. They're 18 and 21, healthy as horses. And, you know, I, I just don't think that's necessary. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that won't happen but I do think it is a real possibility that seems in terms of the masks we did have a mask mandate here in New South Wales for a couple of weeks within shops and and I simply wore a Guy Fawkes mask in the grocery stores and that was fun and I had a couple of people coming up to me uh, giving abuse, but most people were kind of supportive. We've had a mask mandate on public transport for the last couple of months, but that is, I think, just been lifted this week, in fact. And so it hasn't been really super serious. We've never had people, you know, outside having to wear masks. Now, I will say in Victoria, again, where Dan Andrews um, uh, regime put in very, very draconian restrictions, more draconian than any place else in Australia, they did have a much wider ranging mask mandate for a longer time. Um, and of course, you know, we, we've seen people still sometimes on the street with masks. So if there's no rationality as to masks or vaccines or anything, how is this supposed to play out? Do you think it's just going to slowly move towards a more rational approach or it's just going to be who knows what? And, you know, it's well, not yeah, in our I mean, power. It's just going to be decided for us. And that's it. No, I think it will. I think we will gradually move to a more rational approach, again, partly because of that that impetus towards competition and having what other people have. People will look to countries outside of their own borders and think, oh, I, I think they can do it like that. So why can't we? And the more countries start to open up and see sense and even the more states in the United States start to open up and see sense. I mean, you know, Texas is business. We are open 100 percent. I mean, that was great to see. Well, I live here in Texas. Yeah. But what there I can go. tell you is that but what I could tell you is that the people are policing themselves now. So now right. the governor said no mask, you don't need them. But every single business the day of and the day after is like, I don't care. You still need to wear masks. So we're not serving you. Really? So they turned into. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And same thing in Arizona and same thing in, in uh, a lot of places in Florida. So they turned into legal? their own police. But is that legal? I mean, can you refuse service to somebody because they're not wearing a mask? So is far as I know, legal? yeah, they can set their policy. They can refuse to serve. To serve anybody and but who's I mean, going to uh, do something about it, you know? So, but, it's not, but it's not legal to refuse to serve somebody based on the color of their skin, for example, or their gender or apparent gender. Yeah, but that's okay. But masks, no. You know, you're going to kill everyone and that's what's um, happening. That's I, what I've seen is that there's no, there's been no guidance. There's been a total absenteeism of guidance. And yeah. I watched over the past years here in Texas, the businesses just did all different things because they were scared and there was no guidance. Yeah. Even at the school level, the, you know, the powers that be said, well, we're going to let schools decide for themselves and everything now that biden's in the white house there's really no guidance either it's pretty quiet there and so i see the states pushing their sovereignty more you know some of the the more republican states but again that's why i wonder how's it going to play out because now it's like again they're just people are essentially policing themselves now they'll police each other is what i mean so one of the things in history that you can see is that if you have a 
kind of a silly thing going on, like prohibition is a good example, right? So we tried this whole, you know, no alcohol scenario in the US for a while, and it kind of sort of faded out after a while, because people just realized, look, this is just taking away too much joy from our world. And it's just not workable. And so it kind of faded over time, but there were still some remnants, you know, we still have sort of the, the anti-beer brigade or whatever that were, you know, 20, 20 years later, there were still some old ladies who were like, yeah, prohibition. And that was, you know, we think this is the right way. And, you know, the society, unfortunately didn't think so, you know, so you, you do have, you just create sort of a, a coterie of true believers in that sort of stuff. And they will continue to, to, you know, keep on keeping on, but it's the broader base, you know, the majority who will eventually drop it. One of the things that could be helpful is a distraction. So actually, you know, when, when Scott Morrison was getting all this and he's still in the midst of it, getting all this abuse about women, the treatment of women in the, uh, in the parliament. I mean, this is, this is everything from rape to, you know, prostitutes being hired to, uh, you know, people masturbating on the female MP desks. I mean, it's the whole, the whole shebang. Yeah. And, and, you know, I sort of, in a way I was like well at least we're not talking about COVID <laughs> you know? like at least it's something else and that can be helpful because it gets shakes people out of their silliness gives them something else to think about because one of the problems of this whole thing has been that the only thing and the only uh, subject that people were focused on was COVID it was so salient in their minds right. and like nothing else was going on so if you can start to try to reduce that salience by putting other things in its place which is one of the things that will happen when we end JobKeeper and people realize oh gee I don't have enough dollars in my wallet that's that's that pretty you know that wakes you up a little bit and it becomes more important right and so that takes more center stage and COVID then gets pushed a bit to the, to the back, back burner so I'm, I'm hoping that would help as well but don't don't underestimate the, the number of really poorly misaligned incentives that we now have because we've been on this boat for a year. All those industrial incentives I was talking about earlier, right? The, the, the media companies and the health companies and just anybody who's made money from this whole thing, they desperately want this, you know, this whole machinery to keep chugging along because they're making money off of it. And so that that is going to be a, a drag on recover recovering our sanity and 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 restoring the world back to. Well, if you couple the media and the large industry that's making money on this, and probably the politicians too, you know, I've heard of many deals of PPE and stimulus money and all kinds of stuff yep. going to politicians' favorites. Again, what do you think is going to play out? You think it's what's it going to take to stop this madness? I mean, is it going to take like a huge? Uh, demonstration or the demonstrations just being sent yeah i don't know about you guys we haven't had our demonstrations all censored i mean i was at a demonstration in brisbane a few weeks ago a couple of weeks ago and you know it went perfectly peacefully uh you know with no no arrests or anything although there have been arrests in victoria um we've had journalists even be arrested and you know with with claims of being of, of breaching the peace when it was clear that you know they were just sort of interviewing people so there has been some some madness there but apart from in victoria it hasn't been too bad in terms of demonstration proceed but you know the, a demonstration is not really going to make a huge difference uh, i think I, as i say i really think it's got to be external influence on people's ability to to understand how how you know how they could live and they're not living like that and they want to so people looking overseas and seeing oh we could have that and and pushing pushing politicians to provide that um because again at the moment the politicians well, why would why would people why would people pushing do anything when demonstrations don't how do you, how do you how do you get a politician to do something? Well, that's a that's a question True. for the ages. Hey, how do you get a politician to care and to do something? Well, obviously, you have to make it in his interests, right? So, I mean, I mean, a study groups and power and loyalty, and it's it's very clear that that political science is about strategically, uh, you know, figuring out how to make. 
something you want that person to do to seem to be in his interest. And, and that's why I, I think we need a new message. And, and that new message has to include, unfortunately, some degree of inefficient pandering to the existing entrenched interests in order to get something halfway sensible across the line, because those interests are not going to let a complete wholesale uh, reversal happen. They're just not going to let that happen. It, 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 there are too many misaligned incentives going on there. So, so you know, you need to have a story which says, look, apology, we can still have some of this PPE, we can still do some of this testing, we can still do maybe even some quarantine, but there'll be a grandfathering period, for example, right, where, oh, by, you know, November 2021, we're, we're hoping to have the, all the borders open, and we'll have a staged approach to this. And so then that, you know, that says to all of the entrenched uh, in- interests, hey, you'll still be able to, to feed off of this for a few months, um, but it'll be, you know, gradually reducing. So just prepare for that. And, you know, then in November, we're going to have to have a different plan, right? So that's that's basically what you're telling the entrenched interest with such a grandfathering plan. And grandfathering is a wonderful thing, right? Grandfathering is is, is underutilized, I feel, in policymaking around the world, actually, because it, it doesn't challenge people where they are now. It says there's going to be a challenge. And so prepare yourself. It helps people to set expectations in line with what is better for the world going forward, even if in that transition period you're making you're you're causing some waste because there's I no. Guess other you can way call it uh, sunsetting too, right? That's it, sunsetting. Yep, that's another word for it. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Again, for various countries around the world, you mentioned you know they need to see the other the grass is greener type thing. Yeah. Um, what else needs to happen, and over what time scale do you think that this will that restrictions will ease and things will get back to somewhat of a rational uh, posture. So I do expect that by 2022, we should be traveling again. I do think that that will probably happen, but it may be that there will be these immunity passports and there may be uh, you know, additional security precautions, things like this. If there's a really bad, well-documented damaging effect of vaccine. So for example, you know, let's take a worst case scenario. Let's say that in, in six months, we start to get reports of birth defects from women who had the vaccine, right? Uh, like a, you know, thalidomide sort of, if we start getting that, then, you know, I think that will accelerate the process uh, of, you know, not using the vaccine and just sort of saying, look, COVID is not as dangerous as what we've done to these women. And so we need to just lay off. I think. Well, do you help. think they'll say that or they'll say, oh, we need to lock down again because the vaccine is not working. We're back well, to square one because we have to have it. Yeah, in five or six months, though, I think it'll it'll be sort of already that much further along the path where people are starting to think, look, enough is enough. We can't afford to do this as as much anymore. I mean, we've already seen that over the last six months here in Australia. You know, definitely a, a reduction in the popular support for all of these measures. So, I mean, of course, the drug companies and the you know the, the interests that are making these kinds of you know huge amounts of profits out of our out of our plight right now, they are going to be pushing for another lockdown, another this, another that. But I just think the political appetite will not be as strongly. And so, you know, I don't, I'm not, I would never hope for that kind of a, a bad reaction for the vaccines. But if that were to happen, perhaps that will, you know, change the trajectory somewhat. Again, the main thing that needs to happen, people just need to get out and and try to live their lives and speak out against this and and speak sense. This is one of the reasons I've been doing so much of these kinds of talks, right? I just want people to understand that it's, it is nonsensical what we have done. And we are bringing this upon ourselves by being sheep by being compliant, cowardly, unthinking citizens. And we, we've, we've let down our countries, actually, because it's really because of our sentiment that politicians have moved, at least certainly this is the true in, in Australia and the UK. It's because of our popular sentiment that politicians have moved so to 
And so it's really, it's our fault in a way. And we should, we should take responsibility for that and, and push back and say, look, we're not prepared to, to do that anymore. Um, but it's, you know, in terms of what it'll take, look, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm certainly hopeful about these things. And I do think 2022 is a good bet. I'm certainly planning to go over abroad in 2022, come hell or high water. I really want to do that. And I think that other countries will, will have started to normalize by then as well. Um, and hopefully we'll also have changed some of the incentives at the hospitals, you know, to sort of overprovide for COVID and, and overcount, uh, you know, COVID stuff relative to all the other problems that people can have in their health. Um, which is already starting to happen a bit, um, certainly relative to what it was in, in peak mad. What do you mean? What do you mean overcount? You want them to overcount or you don't want them to overcount? No, no, no. I mean, hopefully there'll be less of a disproportionate focus on COVID as the, uh, you know, the, the thing to worry about rather than all the other things okay. that can make people sick. Right. Because that, I mean, in 2020, yeah, they, they shouldn't worry problem. about no big deal type stuff like diabetes or cancer. That yeah, exactly. Like, well, people, yeah. You know? Exactly. Right. And that's exactly the source of the gap crowded out. And we're seeing now, you know, pe- more people are going to be dying of cancer because they didn't get screened because they were afraid to go to the hospital or they just didn't, there was just no resource to go to the hospital or, or whatever happened. And, and they didn't, weren't even thinking about it. They were thinking so much about COVID. And in fact, you know, they've, they've ended up with a much worse result than they otherwise would have had. So, yeah, we had empty hospitals here in Australia for a little while and weeks or months um, because everybody was waiting around for all that onslaught of COVID cases. And of course, what we know now, and this was already known even by the WHO before COVID, is that lockdowns, generally speaking, are not the res- right response to a pandemic, right? They don't actually reduce your your losses to the pandemic. What actually has helped people, helps countries around the world during this crisis is more luck. It's where in the world are you? If you're in Asia somewhere, you tend to, it seems like you can you know, get away with not having as much damage from this thing. If you're a country with no land borders, like Australia, and you shut your international borders early, then you seem to have, you know, a, a period of time, at least, in which you have fewer deaths. Once we open, of course, we may have, you know, those deaths will come anyway, they'll just be a bit later. Um, but we're still in Asia. So I think that will be protected. It also matters what the baseline health level of your population is. And in the US, you know, you have such high levels of diabetes and, and obesity and heart disease. And these things are, are unfortunately, you know, correlated with, with death and suffering from COVID. And of course, there's also just the broken healthcare system in the US compared to Australia, where we have universal single payer basic healthcare and, you know, just a healthier baseline that we're working from. It also matters what your population density is and what your demographic mix is. But these are things that the government can't control in the short run. The only thing the government has been doing, uh, you know, in, in service to COVID, supposedly, is the are these draconian restrictions. And it turns out, and, and the latest research confirms this, that those restrictions don't really correlate with the COVID result that you get. So that sort of well, what, what kind of what kind of re- reaction have you gotten when you say things like that? Do people uh, scream at um, you and call you a, ba- a grandmother killer? Or? Yeah, I mean, I have had granny granny killer uh, as a as a moniker thrown at me a few times by people. But it's you it's get more... a T-shirt that says like number one <laughs> granny killer or something like that, you know. Yeah, sure. Make one. Send it to me. I'll wear it. Yeah. One of my yeah. supporters sent me one that says unapologetically controversial. So I, I wear that quite a lot. No, look, people are so fixated on this idea that lockdowns are the only response possible that it, they, they really have to do a double take to even understand what I'm saying. So when somebody writes me, like I got an email the other day where the subject line was just vomit. That was all there was. Right. And then the in the middle, you know, in the, in the, in the text of the email, it said something like, you know, I wish you'd just be quiet. Nobody will ever want to go to UNSW again or something. 
And so I responded to this, you know, discourteous email by very courteously thanking them for taking the time and explaining that the, the issue was not that I didn't think Australia had had a good result on COVID relative to many other countries. Of course we have, we've only lost like fewer than a thousand people to this, right? Which is like way lower than a lot of countries. And so I'm not saying that that's not true, right? I mean, I can see the data just like everybody else. But what I'm saying is that there's that connection between locking down the economy and getting a good result, whether on COVID or in general, is simply fantastical. It's magical and it doesn't exist, right? That That's the connection. And you really have to push that point because people have just been so brainwashed into thinking that when we lock down, we're saving lives, right? That, that's just not true. It's not true, but people do not, they're not prepared mentally for that. And I have changed a few minds on, on with my emails, I think, um, from judging from the responses I've gotten, people really thanking me saying, gosh, you're really pushing me to think differently about this. And, you know, thank you for your service. And I, I hope you know, I'll be following your work and blah, blah, blah. So people do seem to wake up if you really try hard enough to reach them, but you have to try because the, the initial setting is of a brainwashed person. So this year, still no good you're thinking uh, next year will be the magical year where things get better, huh? Well, I, I'm, I think that, yes, by 2022, I'm, I'm fairly hopeful that we'll at least be able to travel internationally again from Australia. I'd love to be able to go to Europe this Christmas with my family. We've been, we wanted to do that in 2020, but I fucking boshed. Um, but I just don't, I'm not confident about that. And I think that the likelihood of the vaccine passport scenario is, is reasonably high here in Australia, unfortunately. And I honestly, I haven't decided what, the, what I feel about that. Like how, how badly do I want to travel? Would I really be willing to, to get this thing? I, I'm not sure. I haven't made my mind up yet. So, and we haven't, we haven't yet been hearing about the plan for the vaccine rollout here in Australia much. I think the, the frontline workers and, you know, the quote unquote essential workers, people who work with older people, they've been getting texts saying, hey, you can have a vaccine if you want one. But there hasn't been any so far that I've heard any actual compulsion for any group. And certainly, you know, young, healthy people haven't gotten any kind of, kind of communication at all. about. It. So you, I guess, well, I guess we'll see if there's, be, if there's a vaccine passport, you think it's going to be just for international travel? You think it's going to be to like, you know, go to the store and buy a, a soda type thing? Oh, no, I think it'll be international travel. I don't think that they'll uh, go down to the micro level of, of local or, or even interstate travel. So you, so you don't think that the vaccine passport is going to come down to the micro level like masks and be you no. know, forced upon everyone to go everywhere? I mean, there's talk of it to go to concerts. Yeah, maybe in the U.S. I, I, don't, I, just, I just think that that's not going to happen here in Australia. I think that would be just a, a little step too far. But the fact that we're oh. an island nation, yeah. But, but the, the island nation thing, that's what makes it likely in my mind that we, we might see some vaccine passport for international travel. People just feel like, you know, we're safe in this bubble here, right? And that if, you, if you're outside the bubble, then you may be dangerous. Because in the U.S., you, know, you guys have had permeated borders for this whole time. You know, you go across states' borders, right? And... So, so I think people have less of a sense that they're kind of protected in their own little world. But in Australia, we have this strong sense. I, I pick up a strong sense on the street that, you know, if you're in Australia, you know, we, we here are kind of safe. And these little, these little lockdowns in the States, you know, for five or 10 cases, it's a little silly, whatever, but it's a small problem and we've got it under control kind of thing. But once you start talking about opening up the international borders, then, oh, that's, that's dangerous. Like, watch out because all those poison people might come in and, you know, poison us and whatever. So I think that's where you're going to see the push to, to potentially have a vaccine passport. But the local stuff, I just don't see it. I mean, we've been having regular local interactions with no vaccine stuff happening, you know, constantly last year. Maybe some mask wearing and, you know, extra hand sanitizers outside the, the grocery store. But it hasn't been anything like, you know, a, oh, my gosh, if we get the vaccine, then we can safely, you know, go to the store. No, not at all. Well, it makes sense. You guys have had a very different, uh, you know, experience versus other places. So 
Yeah, definitely. Well, very good. Gigi, what's the best way for people to follow more of your work and to, you know, yell at you on Twitter? Seriously, I mean, where can people find you and, and follow you and yeah, yeah. You know, so send you nice, nice communications instead of screaming at you? Yeah, no, thank you for that. I, I'm not on Twitter, but I'm, uh, I'm, you can you can Google me. I'm at UNSW University of New South Wales. My email address is gg.foster at unsw.edu.au. And you, know, you can pretty much find me. If you just, if you just search Gigi Foster COVID Australia, you'll get, you get a, a jolly evening's worth of entertainment. Okay, very good. Well, Gigi, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. That's my pleasure, Richard. Thanks very much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.